Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Ashhadu anna Alhamdulillah وأشهد أن سيدنا محمدًا عبده ورسوله يقول الله جل وعلا في كتابه الكريم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أعاذنا الله وإياكم منها أجمعين أما بعد Dear brothers and sisters, 
dear elders, we are soon entering once again into one of the months of religious and historical significance, and that is the month of Muharram, Shahrullah Muharram, the month of Allah. The month of Muharram, the month that is upon us, marks the Islamic New Year, the Hijri year, marking the migration of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his community from Mecca to Medina. And we ask Allah Ta'ala in the beginning of this khutbah on the day of Al-Jumu'ah to make this coming Islamic year a year in which we also migrate to Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in obedience and in renewed commitment. Ameen. In the month of Muharram, it is well known that it is a sunnah for us to fast, to show our gratitude to Allah Ta'ala for the establishment of justice and for us to bring to mind and to heart the power of truthfulness and sacrifice. The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has told us that the 10th of Muharram was a day in which the previous prophets fasted, so you should fast it too. He also told us Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that fasting on the 10th of Muharram, on the day of Ashura, wipes away the sins of a year. And fasting on the 9th of Arafah, or the 9th of Dhul Hijjah, the day of Arafah, wipes away two years worth of sins. And the Prophet Sallallahu tells us to fast on the day either before or after Ashura, the 10th of Muharram, so that we may be different from the Jewish community in how we observe this fast. And he tells us Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that the most virtuous of fasts after Ramadan are the fasts done in Shahrullah Muharram, the month of Allah. Fasting in Muharram, particularly on the 10th, and ideally a day before it or a day after it, is an expression of gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. It is an expression of shukr to Allah Ta'ala, thanking Him for rescuing Bani Israel from Fir'aun and thanking Allah Ta'ala for destroying Fir'aun and his forces. But we also understand that fasting on Muharram is not just about that. It's about thanking Allah Ta'ala for all momentous occasions that have occurred in history. And we also recognize that in the month of Muharram there are other historical events that took place that we remember we think about and reflect on. We remember, of course, the bravery and determination and sacrifice of Prophet Musa السلام, as he confronted the tyrant Fir'aun. We also remember the sacrifice of the grandson of the Prophet وسلم, Sayyidina Imam Hussein anhu, and how he was martyred by the tyrant Yazid, we think about these events and we remember them and we take lessons from them. 
We recall the words of Allah Ta'ala in Surah At-Tawbah where He tells us in عِدَّةَ الشُّهُورِ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ إِثْنَا عَشَرَ شَهْرًا فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ يَوْمَ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ In which Allah tells us that indeed the number of months in the sight of Allah are 12. We look at the 12 months established by Allah Ta'ala and we see that Muharram is one of them. But there is nothing in the Qur'an explicitly and there's nothing in the Sunnah explicitly that designates Muharram to be the start of the Islamic New Year. So how did Muharram become the start of the Islamic New Year? How did Muharram become our January? The answer is that it was a decision made by the ijtihad of one of the great scholars of our community, the great Sahabi Sayyiduna Umar bin al-Khattabi radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa arda who made the decision during his caliphate to establish Muharram as the mark of the new Islamic year coordinated in recognizing Hijrah as the start. This means that year zero for the Muslim community is the year when Hijrah occurred. The very first year in our calendar commemorates that hijrah from Mecca to Medina. The reason why Sayyidina Umar decided on the Hijri calendar, which starts on Muharram, is for the administrative need of the community. Because until that time, up until that point, people kept the names of the months that were with them in pagan times, but having contracts that would extend beyond a year required the scribes to record the year in which the money would be due. But up until then, the Arabs would simply refer to the years with names based on events, like Amufil, the year of the elephant, and so on. So due to the administrative need, they needed to have a calendar so that the scribes could record when debts were owed. And so Sayyidina Umar anhu decided to use the hijrah as the start of our Islamic New Year. And this was a very wise decision on the part of Sayyidina Umar because we tend to see the New Year as an opening. We tend to see the New Year as an opening to new beginnings, to new possibilities. We tend to see the New Year as a chance to recommit and to have more resolve going forward in the future. The Hijrah, dear brothers and sisters, is not a mere historical term used to describe a past event in our history. The Hijrah is a holistic concept for the entire Ummah. And there is a very formal kind of Hijrah, which is Al-Intiqal min Dar al-Kufri ila Dar al-Islam, for a person to go from the, an abode of disbelief to an abode of Islam. But Hijrah has other dimensions and aspects that apply to every single individual from the Ummah. The companions of the Prophet ﷺ did not use the birth date or the death date of any honored figure to mark the start of our calendar as an Ummah. Instead, they used the Hijrah as its starting point. The migration of the Prophet ﷺ from Mecca to Medina. The Hijrah is the beginning of our year one. 
we go back into the life of the Prophet and we see that in the 13th year of his mission, Quraysh began once again to hatch plots to assassinate him, to kill him, to put an end to his message of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. Ibn Ishaq and Imam Al-Tabari and many others record a narration which describes how Quraysh convened a meeting and assembled together at a place called Dar Nadwa. And there, the Dar Nadwa, they were discussing what they were going to do to the Prophet to put an end to all that they had been dealing with, hearing the message of Islam. They came together to discuss what they're going to do, and as they were gathered, someone came to the door. It was a stranger. This stranger looked like a respectable old man. He was standing at the door of the Dar, and when they saw him, they said, Man is Shaykh, who is the elder? And he replied, I am one of the people of the Najd, of the highlands, who's heard of your plan against him, meaning the Prophet And I've come to hear what you have to say. Perhaps you'll hear me out and let me offer my opinion. Who is this Shaykh of the Highlands? This was actually Iblis himself. It was Shaytan himself in the form of a human being looking like an elderly man from the Highlands of Najd. And this is why this narration describes, describes him as a Shaykh al-Najdi. And so they invited him in, marhaban. And they begin to talk amongst each other about what they're going to do to put an end to the Prophet They consulted one another and one of the people in the crowd, they said, let us put him behind bars and lock him up. And let us wait for the same fate to, be, to befall him as befell the likes of him, such as the poets Nabigha and Zuhair, so he can die behind bars just like they did. So the Sheikh Najdi, the elderly man from the highlands, he said, this should not be your course of action. I swear by Allah, if you imprison him, the news of it's going to reach, it's going to spread behind the prison walls, and it won't be long before his followers launch a sudden attack against you and free him from your control and overcome you. You must consider another course of action. So the Quraysh were talking among themselves again, what should we do to deal with the Prophet ﷺ? Another man among them said, let us expel him from our midst. Let us exile him from our lands so he can leave us and we won't care where he goes after that as long as we get him out. Let us exile him. And Shaytan, in the form of this elderly man from the highlands of Najd, he objected once again. He said, this should not be your course of action. Have you not observed his fine speech and his beautiful diction and his compelling nature that affects the hearts of men? By Allah, if you do that, you will not be safe from him settling among some tribe of the Arabs and winning them over with his words until they pledge their loyalty to him and he leads them to you 
and seizes power from your hands and does with you as he wishes, you must consider another course of action. And so Quraysh began talking again. What are they going to do? And then finally, Abu Jahl spoke up. Abu Jahl, attending this meeting, says, I have a suggestion that none of you have yet to propose. We should take from every single clan among us a young man, someone with power and strength, from every prominent family a young man, and we should give him a sharp sword, and then have them all go forth and strike Muhammad with the sword blow of a single man, killing him. After that's been done, his blood will be evenly divided among all of the clans, and they will be unable to wage war against us, and we will settle with an acceptable <coughs> blood money that we will all contribute to. In order to prevent civil war erupting, it will be done by every single clan. They would send forth a young man to participate in the murder. So first, it was imprisonment. Second, it was the suggestion to exile the Prophet And now Abu Jahl says, let's assassinate him. And do it in such a way that there can be no, no blowback, no bad consequences. That elderly man, Shaytan in the guise of an elderly man, he speaks up. He says, in my opinion, this is the only acceptable course of action. And then the group dispersed and they settled on this decision that they were going to assassinate the Messenger of Allah Soon after this, the hadith mentions that the angel Jibreel descended to the Prophet and said, do not sleep in your bed tonight. Later that night, they all came to his door, different young men from various clans, all with a sharp sword. They gathered around his house at night, waiting for it to get later so he would fall asleep, so they could sneak inside and fall upon him, delivering sword blows to the Prophet When the Messenger of Allah saw them lying in wait outside, he said to Ali anhu, sleep on my bed and wrap yourself up in this mantle, this cloth of mine, and nothing bad will happen to you. Nothing bad will befall you. Later, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu, when he reflected on his experience as a young man, he said, that was the best sleep I had ever, sleeping in the bed of the Prophet sallallahu on the night when all of those people were outside waiting to go in and kill him. The Prophet sallallahu then took a handful of dust in his hand and he sprinkled it in this direction towards the men who were outside and he recited Surah Yasin from the very beginning of the chapter until he reached the verse وَجَعَلْنَا بَيْنَ إِدِيهِمْ سَدًّا وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ فَهُمْ لَا And we have placed before them a barrier and behind them a barrier and we have covered them so they do not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala averted their eyes from the Prophet sallallahu and they were unable to see him. Just as they were unable to see his true status, 
Allah caused them to be blinded and not see his physical form as he was leaving his house that night. At some point in the night, as they continued lying in wait, long after the Prophet ﷺ got out, a man came and saw them lying in wait, ask, asking them, what are you all doing? And they said quietly, we're waiting for Muhammad. And he says, don't you know he already got away? He's left, he's over there. And then he, they touched their heads and they found dust on their heads. They didn't even realize there was dust on their heads. And so, it was at this time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the command and permission for the Prophet sallallahu to migrate from Mecca to Medina. And it was at this stage where the Prophet sallallahu gave the permission to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq to migrate with him. No one knew he was migrating except for Abu Bakr, Ali, and the family of Abu Bakr. The Prophet ﷺ instructed young Ali to return on his behalf all of the goods and items that people had deposited with him for safekeeping. Because he was known as As-Sadiq Al-Amin, the trustworthy and truthful. And even his enemies would deposit valuables with him for safekeeping when they were traveling. Or when they needed someone to look after their wealth. So he instructed Sayyidina Ali to return these items to their lawful owners after he's gone. And so he began his hijrah. The ulama say that the beginning of the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ was from the moment he stepped out of his house and went to the house of Abu Bakr Siddiq anhu. This means the very first stop in that hijrah was to the house of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq anhu. And he had been waiting and preparing Abu Bakr as-Siddiq knew that this time was coming near. And months before, three, four months before this, he purchased two camels and kept them locked up in the pen, feeding them and giving them water so they would be prepared for this day. And that day came. He and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq headed out that night to a small cave in the mountain below Mecca and they entered it. Who was the first to go in the cave? The first to go in the cave was Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. He wanted to go in the cave to make a sweep of the area to search for any poisonous snakes or any scorpions. He was more than willing to take snake bites and scorpion bites so that the Prophet would be safe. This story continues with the pursuit of Quraysh looking for the Prophet and the tracker who was looking for them, Suraqa bin Umadik, and the story of the trip and stopping in different areas until finally reaching Quba and then finally reaching Medina and Munawwara. Our new year marks this momentous historic event. And have been entering into the new Islamic year tomorrow and the day after. We must look at some of the broader lessons of the hijrah and what they mean for us. And so we ask Allah Ta'ala to give you and us and the entire ummah of the Prophet a new year with new openings and with new beginnings. We ask Allah to give us in the new hijri year a new commitment, a renewed commitment to live up to the highest ideals of the hijrah 
and make us those who make hijrah to Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ameen. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفطر صلاتي وأتم تسليمي على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين وبعد Dear brothers and sisters, as we said in the first khutbah, the hijrah is not merely a historical event, but it is a holistic concept. And in the hijrah of the Prophet وسلم, there are many lessons, there are many points of benefit that we can take and apply in our own context. Among the lessons of the hijrah is that hijrah begins with sacrifice and ends with victory. When the Prophet ﷺ was going to make the hijrah, he sacrificed a great deal. It is mentioned in the hadith that as he was preparing to leave his homeland, his beloved homeland of Mecca, he gazed upon the mountains of Mecca, looking back on it, and he said, Wallahi, innaki lakhayru ardillah, wa ahabu ardillahi ilallah, walawla anni ukhrishtu minki ma kharajt. He said lovingly, addressing Mecca, By Allah, you are the best and most beloved of Allah's lands in the sight of Allah. And were it not that your people have expelled me, I would not have left. But in that hijrah, in that sacrifice, there would come great success. And the lesson for us is there is no victory, there is no success, whether it is in matters of dunya, in this world, or deen, or akhirah, without first making sacrifices. We have to understand the nature of hijrah in that time, to fully appreciate the sacrifice. We often read the Hijrah story in the frames or through the frames of someone living in the 20th century, living with the world of globalization. You or I could easily hop on a plane and move halfway across the world and connect with a network of expatriates and set up a business and live relatively safe and sound in a foreign country, even if we don't speak the language because we have the means for doing that. But in that day, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, you could not make such moves so careful, so easily. Your family was everything. Your clan was everything. Your tribe was everything. You can't just get up and go to some other area and assume that you will be welcomed. It was a very difficult journey. But with that sacrifice came victory. That which comes easily also goes easily. The second lesson of the Hijrah is that the Hijrah embodies what it truly means to rely on Allah Ta'ala. And we see this reliance, this tawakkul manifest in many aspects of the Hijrah of the Prophet And perhaps the clearest example of tawakkul in the Hijrah is in the story when the Prophet ﷺ calmed the fears of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq When they were inside of the cave, the idol worshippers of Quraysh were in hot pursuit and they were getting closer and closer. 
And Abu Bakr as-Siddiq looks at the Prophet and says very, very quietly, if one of them just looks at his foot, he's going to see us. If one of them just looks at his foot, they will see the mouth of the cave and they will discover us. He is saying this in a low voice to the Prophet What does the Prophet say? He says What do you think of two with Allah as their third? What do you think of two with Allah as their third? And Allah mentions this incident in the Qur'an. إِذْ يَقُولُ لِصَاحِبِهِ لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَنَا When he said to his sahib, his companion, لَا تَحْزَنْ Do not be afraid, do not be aggrieved. Indeed Allah is with us. And this is the ma'iyah of Allah, the withness of support, of protection. <coughs> this work has to be done. The physical journey of hijrah. And it requires tawakkul in Allah Ta'ala at the same time. We are to trust in Allah Ta'ala and we are to avoid in our life the obsessive micromanaging of every single detail of our life as if everything is entirely under our control. There is a dichotomy we have to be aware of. That is the dichotomy between tawakkul ala Allah, trusting in Allah Ta'ala, and the third lesson of the hijrah, which is al-akhdu bil-asbab, taking the means that Allah has created. There is a dichotomy. Because the Prophet ﷺ was protected by Allah from the very beginning, aided by Allah from the very beginning. As Allah says, وَاللَّهُ يَعْصِمُكَ مِنَ النَّاسِ Allah shall protect you from the people. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ knew that no matter what happens, Allah is going to protect him. Nevertheless, he made plans. Nevertheless, he took the means and he instructed Abu Bakr as-Siddiq to make preparations for the hijrah. While they were on the journey, they took a side route that wasn't normally taken so they could conceal their whereabouts. They hired a travel guide for their journey. He hired Abdullah bin Urayqit as a travel guide. And he had Asma bin Abi Bakr prepare food for the journey. So in trusting in Allah Ta'ala, he still took the means. In our life, no matter what we do, we have to have these two qualities at the same time. Tawakkul ala Allah, trusting in Allah Ta'ala, and taking the lawful means that Allah has allowed for us to take. If a person only takes the means, and they trust in the means, and does not trust in Allah Ta'ala, then their tawheed is deficient. Their understanding and application of Tawheed, their belief in Allah's oneness and power is deficient. On the other hand, if they claim that they're only trusting in Allah Ta'ala and ignoring the means, in some circumstances this is a violation of the Sunnah of the Prophet The believer takes both. The believer, male or female, puts their trust in Allah Ta'ala while using the means that are available to them. But if we're honest with ourselves, looking at trusting in Allah Ta'ala versus taking the means, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us are lacking in tawakkul and we're not really struggling with taking the means, much less obsessing over the means. 
Many people take the means. Many people obsess over the means. How many people are putting their tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? They have to be united. The fourth lesson of the hijrah is that of love. And we see in the many narrations describing Abu Bakr in this journey, what it means to have love for the Prophet When Allah commanded the Prophet to make the hijrah, he went to Abu Bakr to inform him of this. Abu Bakr was waiting for this opportunity. He kept asking and hoping that of all people, he would be the one picked to be the travel companion. Imagine out of all of the companions, he is the one picked. That's what he wanted. His daughter, Sayyida Aisha, she recalls this story. She says, قَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ she relates that the Prophet said to them, Allah has given me permission for making the hijrah and leaving for Medina. فَقَالَ أَبُو بَكْرٍ She says that Abu Bakr cried out, Shall we have companionship? Shall we travel together, Ya Rasulullah? And he says, As-suhbah. Indeed, you'll be my travel companion. And Abu Bakr's daughter, Sayyida Aisha, she says, قَالَتْ فَوَاللَّهِ مَا شَعَرْتُ قَطُّ قَبْلَ ذَلِكَ الْيَوْمِ أَنَّ أَحَدًا يَبْكِي مِنَ الْفَرَحِ حَتَّى رَأَيْتُ أَبَا بَكْرٍ يَوْمَئِذٍ يَبْكِي She says, I have never recalled any man before that who cried out of joy as much as Abu Bakr cried on that day. And when they were on the journey from Mecca to Medina, it is related in the hadith recorded by Imam Ibn Asakir that one early morning, as the Prophet ﷺ was still sleeping, Abu Bakr went out in search of milk. Abu Bakr went out looking for some herdsmen, anyone who might have some milk that they can take for, them, for, for nourishment. And he finds some milk and he comes back to the area where the Prophet ﷺ is sleeping. And by this time the sun is rising. And if you've ever been in Arabia, you know at about 9.30, 10 a.m. it's very, very hot. He arrives back with the milk just as the Prophet ﷺ is waking up. And he hands him the milk while simultaneously taking a shawl and covering the area so that the Prophet ﷺ will be shielded from the sun. So picture this in your mind. He's shielding the Prophet ﷺ with the shawl so the rays of the sun do not strike him in the heat while he's giving him the milk to drink. And then Abu Bakr as-Siddiq says, recalling this experience, he says, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ drank until I was quenched. He drank until I was quenched. Imagine the love where the Prophet ﷺ could drink and his drinking quenches the thirst of Abu Bakr Siddiq That is love, dear brothers and sisters. Imagine being filled with so much love and so much loyalty, so much devotion that your thirst disappears when your beloved drinks. That is love. The fifth and final lesson, dear brothers and sisters, is the hijrah from Mecca to Medina 
points to an enduring and abiding hijrah that is on every single Muslim. And that is the metaphorical hijrah or migration from what Allah Ta'ala has prohibited. Because the Prophet says that the muhajir, the true migrant, the true immigrant is the one man hajara the one who migrates away from what Allah has prohibited. It's not enough to just physically migrate. One must migrate from those things that are destructive to them spiritually. Making hijrah from sins. Hijrah from the haram. Hijrah from laziness. Hijrah from bad habits. Hijrah from negative patterns that weaken our iman. And we ask Allah to make us true muhajirun in the fullest sense of the term who make hijrah to Allah and His Messenger وسلم, by means of obedience and to make hijrah from everything displeasing to Him. May Allah Ta'ala make for us and you and the entire Ummah 1444, a year of growth. May Allah make this new Islamic year a year of positive change for all of us. A year of tawbah, a year of renew, a year of healing, a year of renewed commitment make the intention, even if, like other New Year's resolutions, it doesn't work out entirely, we at least make the niyyah, we make the intention to renew what needs renewing in our life of goodness. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us beautiful and long-standing ruhud, resolutions and covenants in this new Islamic year. Ameen. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد زين المرسلين والأخيار وأكرم من أظلم عليه الليل وأشرق عليه النهار سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين وقوموا إلى صلاتكم يرحمكم الله <تصفيق>